0: Hey, what is this? Summer or what? <laughs> we must have sent a boatload of kids to Barnabas? Kind of reminds me of the story of the, uh, <clears throat> the, 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 the itinerant pastor who agreed to fill a pulpit one day in a, in a small country church in Wisconsin. Uh, and he shows up there, and then one old farmer shows up. And he's st- sitting there behind the pulpit wondering, well, what do I do? And he said, I, I don't know. What, I've never been in this situation before. And the dairy farmer says, well, you know, when, the, when only one cow comes in, I sure do feed him. And so, he got challenged and convicted by that, and so he just poured out his heart into his message, and he went on and on and on, because he just felt like this guy had challenged his, his manhood or something like that. And he finished up, and he said, well, what'd you think? He says, well, when only one comes in, I sure don't make him eat the whole bag. So, well, hopefully you won't get too much today. Uh, last uh, month, uh, we studied uh, in uh, Matthew 5 about being salt and light, and we heard and we learned that as salt of the earth, you know, we are to arrest or stop corruption, you know, we're to uh, create a thirst for Christ in others. Uh, We also saw that light is an analogy to the Godhead and and the Trinity. Uh, Light and darkness are used throughout the Word of God as as a a metaphor for knowledge versus ignorance and good versus evil. Uh, We see in this passage the world's opportunity to perceive the truth about Jesus. The world is in the dark, literally, about God and Christians are to turn on the lights. Uh, light allows people to see. Christians allow the world to understand how God loves us and what Jesus has done to redeem us from our sinful natures. Being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, we actually carry on the purpose or the mission that Jesus had when he came to incarnate to the world. Uh, In fact, the Gospel of John tells us that when Jesus was born, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. Jesus himself said about himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in John 12, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And then also in John 12, put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. Jesus came to earth to show men that God loves them and to demonstrate just what he was prepared to do To have a relationship with Him in a dark, dark world, that revelation was like a piercing, bright light. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, For God made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now we know that salt can lose its saltiness, and Christians can become ineffective in their witness if they lose their purity And we also saw that uh, how light can become ineffective. How? By being hidden or under a basket. So light is meant to be seen and to allow people to see. Today, we want to discuss just how we might apply God's Word in this whole area of being salt and light. Uh, In the face of persecution or a whole lot less, we may be tempted to hide our identity as Christians. If people don't know about our relationship with Jesus, then it really defeats the very purpose of our lives here on earth. That's the way it is with our witness in the world. If we're going to be effective in the role that Jesus gave us as his followers, then we need to be visible. Okay? Uh, At the end of this passage in in verse 16, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify or praise your Father who is in heaven. Notice. Notice that the emphasis here is to allow the world to see our good deeds. Not only should we exemplify all the Beatitudes, but we should let the world see that goodness. Now, this is very important. The goal is not that people would say, wow, what great people Christians are, but rather, what a great God they serve. However, if you'll turn to Matthew 6, we're going to spend just a little bit of time reading there. And there is an apparent problem here. Okay? Start at the beginning of the chapter of uh, Matthew 6. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room "'Close your door and pray to your Father who is in secret, "'and your Father who sees what is done in secret "'will reward you. "'When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition "'as the Gentiles do, "'for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. "'So do not be like them, "'for your Father knows what you have need of "'before you ask Him. "'Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face "'as the hypocrites do, "'for they neglect their appearance "'so that they will be noticed by men "'when they are fasting.' Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that your fasting will be noticed by men. But your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, shall reward you. So, how is it that in the same sermon, Jesus says in apparent contradiction... Let your light so shine that they may see your good works, and then don't practice your righteousness before men. How is that? Well, Christians have often used one or the other of these passages to justify either pushy proselytizing or passive piety. Preachers are supposed to do that. That's called alliteration. Isn't that pretty pretty clever? Yeah. Well, what's he saying? Where's the line? Where's the balance? Well, there's a couple of distinctions here. Look at verse 1. Do not practice your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. Okay? The question is motivation. Is it for His glory or for mine? Okay? Then secondly, take a look at the activities that Jesus is talking about. Uh, We are to be lights in the world through our good deeds. However, these actions are to be done in secret to give and pray and fast are really part of our spiritual disciplines. When we give, it should not be a public thing that draws attention to us. That's one of the reasons that we don't pass the plate here at Lion and Lamb. It's back there in the corner. Uh, uh, Christians, when they're mature, should be giving Generously and cheerfully as we heard this morning in the Sunday school. But it's not to show off. Fasting is for the purpose of spiritual cleansing, reflecting, and for focus. Not to impress others about how spiritual we are. And of course public prayer is not wrong. However, it can be if done in a showy manner with repetition and drawing attention to ourselves. Remember. As Mike taught earlier, uh, just about a month ago, pride can even creep into our spiritual activities. But what about those ordinary good works in practice? Uh, You know, when folks do good for us, we want to and should express our gratitude. And on the other hand, we will all feel closer to others when they thank us for something. That's natural. It's something, it's kind of like the glue that holds the body of Christ together, we should always have a thankful attitude as recipients and never feel guilty that somebody thanks us for helping. On the other hand, we should have as much joy in doing good when people do not thank us or maybe even they don't even notice it. One of the mission, part of our mission statement as Lion and Lamb is to authentically pursue a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obey all of His commandments. Therefore, praise for our good deeds is not our goal. We should be, we should not be resentful when we are not thanked. This is not what we're after. At times our good works may even go unnoticed. Just ask any wife in here who has spent all day cleaning up the house and it isn't even noticed, much less thanked. Okay? Any amens to that, ladies? Amen. Okay. Okay. One thing we all have but we would all be better without is expectations. Okay? Almost impossible to avoid. We do good and then we expect thanks. We expect recognition. Something in return for our efforts. But as we Focus on these emotional accounts receivable, we forget why and who we serve. And when our expectations are not met, we often become disappointed, disillusioned, discouraged, or maybe even bitter. On the other hand, if we serve without expectation of reward from anyone, you know, we can't be disappointed. We should remember that what we're doing, whenever we're doing righteousness, we are doing it for Christ. He said, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of me, even to the least of these, you are doing it to me. That's our goal. However, some even hold back from serving in low-profile ways because they know it will not be praised. This is a sign a signpost that pride may have a foothold in one's life. God wants us to see serving as part of our mission. In Ephesians 2, a very familiar passage, which we almost all know the beginning of, for by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. We tend to forget the next verse. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You know, good works don't earn your salvation, but they are commanded. We should look at good works as planting a harvest. When you drop the seed in the ground and bury it, it doesn't pop up right away. And our good works should be viewed as something we're investing in the future, and we will reap the harvest, possibly not until eternity. Some who receive our good works will even turn against us. This is apparently what happened to David when he he wrote in Psalm 35, they rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, I put on sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, but in my adversity they rejoiced. They would not stop slandering me. Again, We should remember that we are more than conquerors in doing good works for those who reject us or turn against us. God seeks to transform those ungrateful and bitter people into valuable co-workers for his kingdom as a result of response to our response. That's why we're admonished, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Finally, If we are humbled by somebody's rejection, God is faithful to give us more grace to enable us to forgive offenders and develop the character of Christ. That's why Jesus gave us this inexplicable command to bless those that curse you. Bless and curse not in return. Do good to them that hate you. So, let's go back to this issue of praise. Of course, While we all love praise, the problem is we love praise. You know? That pesky pride thing again. So how do we handle praise graciously? Uh, When someone thanks or praises us for an achievement, a good deed, or a job well done, I suggest that we deflect praise to the source of that effort or that good. Fact is, you and I don't really completely do anything on our own. We all owe credit for our good deeds and accomplishments to others and ultimately to our Creator. Without Him, we would have or be really nothing. It certainly appears, it's certainly appropriate to thank a teacher, a mentor, a parent, a coach, or even your teammates. You know... Some examples. Um, When, after the the big exciting finish to the football game, the sportscaster is interviewing the star running back and he just heaps praise on him. He says, how did it feel to, to to score the winning touchdown? You know, it would be so refreshing to hear, well, you know, our coach is really prepared as well. Or, you know, it's those guys up front you know, who opened a great big hole, and I was just able to walk, stroll right in. You know? But with rare exception, it's I, I, I. Wee, wee, wee. Any of you here ever been a lineman? Okay, I was. You'd really like to hear the running back say that once in a while, you know? But as Phil Jackson once said, at least in a commercial, there's no I in we. We've gotta understand that our success is usually dependent on somebody else. How about as parents, it'd be a good idea, I hope somebody says to your kids, you are so well-mannered. Well, the next step is how do they respond to that? You know, And one might be, you know, mom always taught us to show respect for others, okay? Rather than just just kinda of soak it in. So you do something good for somebody and they, they thank you or they compliment you or whatever. Well, a good response is, well, the Lord prompted me to do this for you. Or I'm, I'm blessed that God would encourage you in that way. There's lots of ways you can respond. There's no formula for this. But the idea is you give credit where credit is really due. The goal is for people to see what a great God we serve. For that to happen, we've got to make it clear the reason why we live our lives the way that we do. That we do this good and we serve because we are following Jesus. In order to be the light in the world, to, in every good thing that we do for others, it's vital that God eventually gets the credit. If we do good but fail to point to Jesus, then we haven't done what light is supposed to do. Being salt means that our lives are characterized by goodness. Being light means that people are able to see God is the source and purpose and cause of that goodness. Several years after Jesus uttered the Beatitudes, Peter repeated the very same concept in 1 Peter 2 when he read, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against our soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. You know, we never know whom we are serving. The author of Hebrews said in chapter 13, Let love of the brothers continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. You just never know. In the rest of the time that we've got here, what I'd like to do is try to take an honest and maybe a bit surprising look at some of the things that Christians have done, sometimes better than other times, and then I'd like to, to take a look at what may be a more effective, or what I think Jesus had in mind when he told us through this metaphor that we should be a visible example to the world of the goodness that God can produce infallible, sinful human beings. The first thing is what I call de facto isolation. De facto is a legal term, which means, in fact, the actual effect of, even if not intended. Now, Christians don't intend to hide their light. I mean, I hope you don't. But we should be honest about what usually happens, or what has happened over the centuries in Christendom. In the United States, uh, this probably started as, a pre- as a, an attempt to preserve our purity, uh, as James says, to keep ourselves from becoming polluted by the world. In an effort to do things differently from the world, we created structures and organizations and institutions that would allow us to spend our time with believers rather than unbelievers. The YMCA was started in the 1800s because young men were coming off the farms with their good down-to-earth church-driven values to the city to find work. And what did they find there? They found dance halls and and booze and prostitutes and everything to lead them astray. So the why was started to give them something to do, kind of burn off some of that youthful energy instead of those other activities. More recently, we've had such things as Christian businessmen's groups and Christian directories so that we do business primarily with other Christians. Uh, We've had Christian radio stations, Christian publishers, Christian counselors, Christian musicians, Christian newspapers, Christian artists, Christian television, Christian movies. The more immoral the world becomes around us, the more these alternative organizations and things pop up. Some, some people have even put their children in Christian schools, and even crazier, some have kept them at home, to create their own little Christian world. Now, why are you laughing? Yeah, I know. I resemble those remarks. And to be honest, you know, if I had it to do all over again, I'd probably do it the very same way, trying to leave out about a few thousand mistakes along the way. But take an honest look at our lives. You know, you do it for yourself. I've done it with mine. Other than in my work, I don't spend a lot of time with, Christian, with, with non-believers. I don't have a lot of opportunity. If you think about it, maybe your situation is different. Uh, we can find ourselves unintentionally isolated from the world. We certainly need these alternative things to preserve our purity and not just blend him with the world. However, an honest look leads us to a, a convicting conclusion about our ability to be salt and light in the world. Now, is spending time with other Christians a bad thing? Absolutely not. You read in Acts 2 about what the early church was doing. They spent a lot of time together. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's, all these things have their advantages and purposes. However, there is a tendency for us to find ourselves pretty much disconnected to the world. And essentially, unintentionally, we have our light under a basket. Of course, there's that old debate about whether this isolation is necessary to keep the church morally pure. Personally, I do tend toward that purity side, but listen to what Paul has to say to the Corinthian church in in 1 Corinthians 5. Starting there at verse 9, he says, I wrote you in a letter not to associate with immoral people. But I did not mean, at all mean, with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So, Paul, if we don't separate from the world, how do we keep the church pure? Read on. Verse 11, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he's an immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. No, don't even eat with such a one. Don't sit to one of these people in the potluck. Don't sit with them. Okay? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So yeah, we do do something to keep the church pure. But it's not to stay out of the world. Church discipline is a topic for another day. The point here is this. Paul explicitly says that we are not to isolate ourselves from sinners in the world. If our lights are going to be seen in the world, we've got to be involved in the world, not isolated from it. Jesus faced this very same dilemma uh, in contact with the world on several occasions. He was criticizing for mixing with the wrong crowd. In Luke 5, it says after that, he went out and he noticed a tax collector, Levi, there standing by the booth. And he said, follow me. Levi got up and followed him. And Levi gave a big reception for Jesus in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were there reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said, it is not those who are well who need a physician." But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Same thing happened with Zacchaeus Uh, when he called him down from the tree. He said, the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. Now, you might say, shouldn't we be protecting our children from the evils of the world? Well, absolutely. If your kid's falling apart or they're drifting away because she's hanging with the wrong crowd... Do something yesterday, okay? But even more importantly, get help and whatever's necessary to develop and strengthen your own family relationships. And once your family is reconstituted, allow your child to see you intentionally building new connections with folks in the world in a context where your family is the light to the darkness outside, not the other way around. As parents our job is to prepare our children to be strong steadfast life steadfast lights excuse me to the world it's just as unbiblical to put your child in a de facto monastery as it is to abandon him or her to the wolves of the world isolation makes us invisible It hides the light that we're meant to shine just as much as being in the world and of the world makes us blend in with the world. Now, we've had several ministries presented up front here in the last year in hopes of providing opportunities for every single one of the folks here to get involved with something, in ministering to somebody, and undoubtedly that's going to involve some contact with unbelievers it is vital for our children to see that life is more than just acquiring stuff and gazing at screens until we die. Okay? And sometimes I wonder. Rather, life is a privilege to shine the light of Jesus and to store up our treasures in heaven. Another thing that the church at large has tried is a thing called proclamation, okay? Uh, Usually from our isolated positions, but we tend to spread the good news about Jesus with persuasive words. Uh, Stop and think for a a minute how most non-Christians might hear the message of the Bible today. It's possible that some might wander in here on Sunday and hear the word taught, but most do not, okay? Probably a more likely scenario is they might hear a street evangelist. They might go to a, be 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 drugged into a crusade somewhere, or more likely these days they might accidentally settle on a TV evangelist uh, by by mistake perhaps and hear something. Um, we have to be very careful about these things. Uh, there are. Gospel tracts, there's books, there's people who go to door. there's street preachers. And without a doubt, we know that when you broadcast seed, some is going to fall on stony ground and die. Some is going to fall on on, uh, fallow ground. It's just not going to take root. might spring up and then die. And some is going to take deep root and will bear fruit. But, we've got to be careful. Okay, just a little caution here. Some of the high-profile evangelists and teachers, especially on big hair TV, are, can get way, way off. Okay, just be cautious about that. But there's nothing wrong with the media of television to convey. The, the problem is that all of these things we've just mentioned tend to be impersonal and non-relational. And with all of today's communication media, there's a tendency to interact more with devices than with people, whether it's the big screen or the little screen. Uh, There is so much to look at and listen to today because everybody's communicating electronically. Literally, we have information overload. We are becoming a people that minimizes face-to-face relationships. Our quiet messages of life have more and more competition. Finally, each one of these traditional methods rely heavily on words instead of examples as well. Listen to what Paul says about his ministry among the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. It isn't that Paul didn't speak to them. He certainly explained the gospel, but he also lived out the power of the gospel in his own life, right in front of them, where they could all see it. Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with crusades or tracks or street preaching. I'm saying these traditional methods can be productive, but they are simply not enough. If we're going to be lights to the world as God intends us to be, then we need to be seen and not just heard. To be visible, we've got to get close up and personal. Whenever these tools we've mentioned incorporate personal contact between unbeliever and believer, then they tend to have a greater impact. So let's continue to use whatever tools God gives us that actually reach the hearts of people. At Lion and Lamb, we tend to minimize the priest laity distinction and put more emphasis on each believer being a serving priest. Uh, We believe the body of Christ is intended by God to work together as, surprise, a body with interdependent parts, each playing a distinct role. So we encourage all to take an active role in serving within and outside the body. Each member of Lion Lamb can and should make a contribution to the functioning of the body. Why do we do this? Well, primarily because it's biblical. In 1 Peter 2, he calls the believers of the body living stones of a spiritual house of a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who is God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Secondly, this body will, this body here will be stronger to the extent that its members feel connected and contribute on a personal level. The application here is the same is true in respect to ministry, to unbelievers and evangelism. It's not the job of Mike or the elders or the, or the deacons or the leaders or the clergy or anybody to evangelize. It's all of our responsibility. We need to first learn from the teaching we receive here and through the example of mature believers. Then we need to integrate what we learn into our daily lives and really live it out in a genuine manner. And finally, we need to go into the world and live it out in front of them consistently so that we can be a light. Remember, making disciples starts with bringing somebody to Jesus and ends with death. Jesus does not say the pastor is the light of the world. He said, you are the light of the world. That's all of us here today. So, what do we do to make this happy? To kind of summarize these points here. The first one is we've got to make contact. We've got to be more intentional about rubbing shoulders with people in our circles. Many of you work in environments with unbelievers, or perhaps you're in civic groups or or other activities like that. What a great opportunity to let people know about the love of Jesus and see the light in you. Uh, When Jesus left us here, that's exactly what he intended. Listen to his words, the words of his final prayer for his followers in John 17. He said there, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, the believers that I'm leaving behind. And I am coming to you, Father. In verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that that you protect them from the evil one. And then in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We have a mission, a purpose. We are to remain unpolluted from the world, but the place we belong is in the world while we're here. Right in the middle of it. Involved every day with people who need to see the light of Jesus. Secondly, we've got to build relationship. The most natural avenue for truth of the gospel is through relations. It doesn't need to be a long-standing relationship, but it's got to be personal and relational. Uh, We must care for unbelievers as people, not as potential converts. Our our love should be demonstrated in our willingness to serve them. This is the way that Paul described how he witnessed to and drew unbelievers to Christ uh, in the Greek city of Thessalonica. He said there in 1 Thessalonians 1, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And then later in 1 Thessalonians 2, we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. What this gets down to is we've got to love sinners. Notice in the message, that Paul gave, that it was communicated both in word and in works. Paul and his partners let these people see them live life. They demonstrated on a day-to-day basis what Jesus looks like. The Thessalonians could see the goodness that Jesus produced in these followers, and so they longed to experience that kind of love and life as well. Several years ago, uh, some of our kids and maybe some of the others here got involved in a, in a program, a project to take character qualities into public schools. There was also a program to take this into businesses. And because of those forums, you can't always mention Jesus or anything about religion. So you had to dwell just on the character traits and those things. Some of our our. our our good and godly brothers, uh, criticize that effort. Okay? This is an effort that I think Tammy Powell was involved with and several of the kids here. uh, uh, Barry Feker and uh, Mike Patton's mother presently leads the city of character for Topeka. Uh, Some said, you cannot be good without Christ. Worthless activity. Well, I agree. You cannot be good without Christ. And if the goal was to make them good, then it failed. Had to. But that's not the goal. Because what happened as a result of those things was these kids got interested not just in the character qualities, but they got interested in the people that, was, that were relating those things to them and were able to come to Bible clubs and other activities later on and maybe get into churches. Okay? Just reminded of this this morning in the in the FPU Financial Peace University. Dave Ramsey has done a masterful job of mainstreaming streaming the gospel. He's not on Christian radio as far as I know. He maybe is on some stations, but he's on all the other stations and he's got a massive following and they hear the principles of God's word when they take his Financial Peace University because it works. Okay? That's the kind of attitude we've got to have. Thirdly, we've got to be available. When you live that kind of goodness out in front of others, it will cause some to desire <clears throat> that same kind of life that we have. We've got to be ready for the day when someone drawn by our witness asks us where we got it so they can get it too. And he's, I don't know most of the kids are gone that are in our class this year, but first Peter 3: 15. Always be prepared with an answer, a defense, an apologia for, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Okay? We've got to be available. We've got to be ready. Fourth, never heard this one before. Invite them to church. Okay? Hopefully, you're not here out of tradition. Hopefully, you're here because you want to be here. Now, People get their impression of church, I think, from either the media, movies, television, or experience. Which do you think is a better way to get, which would you rather they get their impression from? Okay? They're not going to get it unless they come here. Okay? Then, when a visitor walks in, think how you would want to be treated. You know, the friendlier people are to you, the more you will be attracted to what they have. Think about it. Finally, last point. we got to point to Jesus. It's not us. It's not me or you that's good. We're just sinners, but we're sinners who have Jesus inside. Anything good that happens is a result of Him. Philippians 2 tells us do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine as lights in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Notice that last phrase. You shine as lights so that you hold out the word of life. It's really, really important to follow up our good behavior, and our good deeds by pointing people to Jesus. If we don't, we are shining the light on emptiness instead of shining it on the world's only hope. The best way to shine the brightest is to live a life authentically and consistently Sunday through Saturday, 24-7, that demonstrates those qualities that we've seen in uh, the first part of Matthew 5. We've got to see the multitudes, the folks out there, as Jesus saw them, with compassion. We've got to have an utter poverty of spirit that accepts our own inadequacies in deep submission. We've got to become spiritual beggars. We've got to abandon pride and self-sufficiency, rely totally on God in order to be in a position to assume the other qualities found in the, in the Beatitudes. We've got to mourn for our sin and have a deep inner grief over any sin uh, that may lead someone else astray. We've got to be meek, humble, patient, die to self in order to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, possess the self-control to resist reaction, be true ladies and gentlemen in the classical sense. We've got to hunger and thirst after righteousness, have an ardent and continual craving for Christ as the only one who can satisfy our deepest thirst and hunger. We've got to be merciful and have a spirit which returns good for evil. We've got to be pure in heart, not being of the world, friends with the world or double-minded, but rather having a singular purpose of seeing God and knowing His truth. We've got to be peacemakers, make peace between God and man just as Christ reconciled us to, to His Father. And finally, we've actually got to take the basket off of our light. We, we must be ready for persecution from some quarters. And when it comes, and I think it will, rejoice when persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Remember, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are meant to live to live morally pure lives, do great deeds to benefit others around you. And as the light of the world, you are to live out that goodness visibly in front of people of the world. Your life should point them to Jesus where they can find true life as well. You know, that's the task that Jesus left all of us on this planet to accomplish. And we can still worship Him when we're in heaven. We can still serve Him when we go to heaven. And we can, as far as I, I can tell, we can still have fellowship with each other when we get to heaven. But there's one thing that we cannot do when we get to heaven. And that's to help other people discover how they can be there as well. Lord God, we just give our praise to you. And we want to thank you, Father. We want to thank you that you sent your son as a humble servant to be the light of the world. And to tell us that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world as he has left us. Father, we pray that you would continue to do the work in our hearts and purify us and make us worthier vessels for your work. Lord God, we just give you all the praise and ask that you would do a special work in each of our hearts to make us the saltiest salt that we can be and the brightest light that we can be. We give you the credit for all. In your name we pray, amen.